weekly waves with Bert and Hayes. We lift the weights and go on dates. And we are mates that educate and conversate. And it's our podcast. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to Weekly Weights. This is episode 116, I think. Is that right, Will? We're in the 110s. Yeah, I think 116. it is 116, is yeah, it? I think yeah. so. Anyway, we are here with Josh and Zach from Data Driven Strength. Thanks for coming on, guys. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having us, Coles. If you want to just um, give everyone a quick intro on yourselves, we'll start with you, Zach. Cool, yeah. Um, so my name is Zach Robinson. Um, I am currently a master's student at Florida Atlantic University, um, doing my master's degree there, doing some research and stuff. Uh, been coaching for a while, data-driven strength, obviously. Um, been doing that thing for probably about a year and a half, two years now, something like that. So Josh and I have been doing that together, um, both at FAU now, um, finishing that up soon and hoping to do my PhD after that. So short, sweet intro. Gil and Josh. So you can basically copy and paste our intros. Um, we both went to the same uh, undergraduate uh, program at Ohio State. We're both at uh, Florida Atlantic University now, so pretty much copy and paste the intros. I might just be slightly more handsome. Um, I'll let you guys decide that, but but that's really the, the primary. I would say infinitely. If I was going to say you're both sort of scraping in just below average, so you're at that point where it hardly matters, right? But, but just wait till it speaks, and you, then you'll kind of see where the, the trade-off is. Yeah, right. Um, I'm actually personally quite excited to have you two on. Um, if you don't follow the two data-driven strength accounts, I don't know if there's, an, if there's a third one for your business, but Josh and Zach, data-driven strength, they share a lot of what I think is sort of some of the best and most thought-provoking content about, about training and programming and things for strength. So I think this will be really interesting. And I'm also very excited because it's kind of like a round table, Alex. We've got... We got four people on the call and we're going to talk a little bit about like the philosophy of training and how we make decisions and things. Um, so I'm, I'm anticipating a really good discussion and to kick it off, I guess the, just to lay a bit of a, a, a framework for us, coaches and athletes like to sort of draw cause and effect relationships um, between what we're prescribing to people or what we've got on our program and what we do in the gym and actually what we get back from it. Um, so epistemologically speaking, how can we know what actually worked in our training? Yeah, I'll go ahead and kick this one off. Um, I think at, at the very base of it, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that like, we can't truly know. So I think just taking a step and acknowledging that we can't truly know is, is, a, is a big one. Um, and just acknowledging that there always is a degree of uncertainty when we make these kind of decisions. Um, and just having a degree of humility at all times when, when we establish these, what we believe to be cause and effect relationships, I think is something that um, as coaches goes a long way. I think the main thing that's kind of tangible that we can think about that kind of influences these, um, these relationships that we may see in practice. So if somebody trains a certain way or, you know, sets up a block that they think is going to be really cool using some new ideas or whatever, and that seems to result in a short-term improvement in performance or whatever measurement you want to use to gauge your uh, progress that you're actually tracking. I think it's just important to realize that that immediate effect is in, is in the grander scheme of all of these higher order effects that muddy the waters a ton. So just because you train a certain way or you do something in, in the immediate, doesn't necessarily mean that that is the causative factor in the actual relationship that we're seeing in the progression variable that we're tracking. So just taking a step back and realizing there's just this huge net of factors that all go into the same thing is something I think is really, really important. Just to name a few of these, like in specifics that we could talk about are, you know, I could go on for days about how muscle growth makes, you know, especially in a strength program can, can muddy the waters and exactly how that, how that works out with the main variable there being time. I think if you're trying a ton of different, you know, ideas and, and they seem to not work in the short term, maybe you try two or three blocks in a row where things quote unquote aren't working, but in the background, if you're training with, you know, a sufficient volume, your nutritional status is, you know, sufficient for for muscle growth to happen you know these two or three blocks are, are taking up time where you're building muscle and then you try you know what you think is going to be an effective combination of strength variables progress shoots up and you're like there it is it sets a five that's that's what does it for me when in reality 
you know, that, that, that relationship is just a whole lot more complicated. And then you throw on other variables like psychological factors that we hit on a ton, like just how you approach every session with intent, focus, confidence, all of those things can significantly impact not only the acute training session, but also the adaptations accrued from that training. And then, you know, you throw on the, all the other life stress variables, you know, how's your sleep, how's your nutrition, how's your relationship with your girlfriend, all these things. There's just so many more things to say that play into the ultimate effects of the performance variable that we're tracking rather than just the immediate organization or programming strategies that you're using. So I think it's just the, the long and short of it is that we just need to acknowledge that there is a degree of uncertainty with this thing. Now, I don't want to come off that it, we need to be extremely nihilistic about this because I do think there is better and worse ways to go about it. But the first step is to acknowledge that there's just a whole lot more going on than doing sets of eight versus sets of five. So Josh, yeah. I don't have anything else to add there. Um, oh, I'd like to jump in before you do. I think what you said about the effect of time is really important because people think about that when we talk about, you know, like medical treatments and things. One of the reasons like why we need say placebo controlled trial is if you, if somebody has a common cold and you give them some bizarre supplement for two or three weeks, they might get better, but it might literally be just the natural time course of, you know, getting better from a cold. Um, and not the supplement. And the same thing, like you said, can be true with training. You can do training that feels reasonably ineffectual, but if you try really hard for a long time, you'll probably get better from training, even training that is suboptimal. And so something that I say to a few of my athletes is if we go through a block where it's like, oh, you know, this didn't quite pan out the way we would have liked, that hard work hasn't gone entirely to waste. And it's still a fact-finding mission. And if doing something where you thought it might've worked on paper, but you didn't really enjoy it, you didn't really get the results and stuff that you wanted, actually leads you down the track to finding the things that you do enjoy while still potentially potentiating progress in it. There can be value in training that doesn't work, even if it doesn't necessarily, like you said, tell you exactly why what does work does, you know? And that's solving the problems half the fun. I think if we all knew exactly what training variables, like the perfect organization of programming strategy for an individual is that maybe we'd lose half the fun of kind of, you know, taking 10, 15 years to figure that stuff out. I think that's something that often goes overlooked too is like, yeah, I mean, it'd be cool to know the exact perfect program for everybody, but like, you know, half of this, you know, we all like to learn. We all like to, you know, make mistakes and learn from them. And I think that's half the fun too. That often doesn't get enough credit, but I'll stop rambling, Josh. So really quick to piggyback off what Will said. First of all, I totally agree. And I'm not going to act like I know the exact mechanism or, or can pinpoint the reasons why that occurs, but to, but to potentially get in the weeds a little bit, as long as you're doing some degree of training and, and you're tipping the scales in favor of net muscle protein synthesis, outweighing net mu muscle protein balance, um, muscle growth is, is always going to be accruing to some degree. So like you guys both emphasized, if, if we do, decent training within within some degree of of reasonable constraints and we give it sufficient time really as long as there's there's a time in our life where you know quote unquote the stars align in the sense that um your expectations about training are high life stress might be low you're able to you know some of the factors zach said about you know relationship with, with your significant other um you know when those things kind of align um like i mentioned to having high, uh, having high expectations, you know, coach says it's go time, you know, we're testing in six weeks. Maybe that's when we put the pedal to the metal and actually, um, you know, train with high intent and we can actually employ this muscle growth that's been accruing for the last X number of months, but actually put it to use if that makes sense. So, so again, like Zach said, I don't want to come off as nihilistic, but I, I, I want to underscore, um, you know, always having some degree of humility when we do try to make some degree of cause and effect relationships or, or try to make some degree of connections um, or some degree of in inclinations about what an athlete responds to is always having that humility of, you know, what I'm doing right now isn't necessarily input output right away. Yeah. Something else um, that I was actually anticipating we'd talk about when I asked this question, but we haven't spoken about it at all. Um, that I think about quite a lot is the difficulty in practice as well of separating training variables. And, you know, in, like in science, we'll, people will design experiments to actually examine, you know, like what does increasing or decreasing volume do to training, like a higher or lower intensities better. Um, and that's all overlaid on a huge amount of inter-individual variability in response. 
But in the real world, we pretty much never make changes to volume in isolation. We make changes to volume that also interact with, you know, the relative intensity with which we're lifting or the distribution of training um, and all of those things. So when as coaches, we then look at things sort of through like a very narrow lens, we say, you know, what's, how does this trainee respond to high or low levels of volume? Say we often kind of miss a lot of the contextual, um, contextual picture or like, you know, the surrounding stuff in the program and in their training approach that makes a bit of a difference as well. Um, and I was just wondering if either of you would like to speak to that either to agree or disagree. Yeah. yeah I, I think I'll go, go ahead. ahead. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, so I agree with you that you, you definitely can't truly isolate a, a single variable. Um, you know, in, in research, we can, we can make one arm of the study, the, the placebo controlled group. Right. Um, but we don't have that. We can't, we can't pull apart expectations from the picture in practice. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things that influence an individual's expectations, uh, whether it's the way the coach communicates the program to them, whether that's their, their prior influences related to training. Um, you know, did, did they grow up reading Muscle Magazine and T Nation, or are they more so in the evidence-based community? Um, you know, what, what's on paper and what the research indicates, um, or, or if we had a crystal ball to know exactly what somebody responds well to, um, that's quite different once we factor in the individual's expectations about what they're going to respond to. So, you know, if we add more sets, we, we also have to um, take into account whether they expect adding sets to be good for them. I think the other thing too, just to piggyback off of that, is that, you know, I think oftentimes as coaches, we, we view as like making changes as something that outside from the training doesn't necessarily affect the athlete. But I think a lot of times you'll run into the, the example of, you know, let's say you, you think this person needs an increase in volume. You know, maybe that increases session time and maybe that person starts to perceive that as like, man, I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not working hard enough. It's just, it's just another psychological variable that I think goes on top of that. So obviously there's better and worse ways to communicate that as a coach, but there's a two-way street there. It's like when you're manipulating variables, yes, we're manipulating that from the training side of things, but that also comes from the, the way that the athlete perceives that change, I think is important too. Like if you are, you know, maybe you're trying higher RPE top sets, let's say, maybe they perceive that if the communication is poor, that they need to be going harder and then they have a negative uh, self-image and stuff like that. I just think there's just so many things that go into it that I think, um, of course, there, there is, you know, some degree of information we can draw from by manipulating variables, but I think it just, it just needs to be in this contextual backdrop to use one of your guys' terms of all the factors that play into it. And it's not just this unimodal change that you're just making, you know, an input-output um, decision. There's just a ton of other factors that play into the ultimate outcome. I think the thing that's probably the most overlooked is the relationship between enjoyment and engagement with the training that you set up for someone. If you can make it enjoyable enough that they are engaging in every single rep and every single set, regardless of whether it's quote unquote optimal, you're going to get more out of that training if they are genuinely engaged. I, that's I just hung in the air. I was waiting for you guys to absolutely shit on him and say, come on, Alex, like back in your box, mate. No, <laughs> I, I think, I, I think we should try to kind of normalize that approach. I think, I, I think a lot of people kind of hear that line of thinking, which I think I speak for both of us in saying that we absolutely agree. Um, you know, everybody's kind of chasing this quote unquote optimal ghost. But again, I, I go back to what I said before, if we could have this crystal ball of what input is, is results in the best output for that individual, that's not really how it plays out in practice. Optimal is the, the overlap of the, of the Venn diagram of what that perfect construction of variables is, plus their ability to enjoy and engage with training. Um, so uh, again, I think a lot of people kind of like, yeah, you should, you should be engaged with your training, but at the end of the day, we want to, we're going to train hard no matter what brother, but uh, I'm not sure that's the most sustainable or, or realistic or best approach in practice. I think too, one thing that just from the way of framing it, like I think often what Josh just said, people will view that as, you know, if I, if I'm making steps to enjoy my training, I, that's, they're viewing that as something that's, taking away from the optimal situation. But I like to reframe that and think about it. If you were enjoying your training, that literally is better than if you didn't. I think just getting that through your head and that slight semantic distinction is, is something I wish more people appreciated because I think 
yeah, like Josh said, it's this thing that, yeah, we shouldn't enjoy your training. You shouldn't hate what you're doing. It's like, no, stop and think about that for a second. That literally is better than if you didn't enjoy your training because you'll have better expectations. You'll train with more intent and all these things that I think people, you know, kind of take as these woo-woo factors. But I really do think we should take that with more, um, j- just take those factors more seriously and, and really realize that that really contributes to what is optimal in the long run. It's not that you're taking steps away from, you know, this set and reps and that RP, uh, whatever is, is the best way to train. It's that, you know, we have these basic principles that we believe to be, you know, better and worse for a given outcome. But if you don't enjoy this one way of organizing it, there's a different way of organizing it towards the same goal that literally will lead to a better outcome if you enjoy it. So I think it's just reframing that to to say that, you know, yes, enjoyment matters, but it's not, it's not like this soft thing that, that takes away from progression. It literally adds to it. So I think that's important to kind of uh, talk about. Yeah. And in your, in your first answer, you mentioned the importance of time and things being on a longer time scale. If you don't enjoy your training, you're not going to last a long time. You're not going to be in this for 10 years. And, you know, we know that the best lifters out there are in this for 10, 15, 20 years, right? You know, you're not even going to get there if you don't enjoy it. So biggest and strongest are the ones that train the longest. Yep. I was going to say almost the exact same thing. Uh, We all want to be strong as soon as possible, but at the the end of the day, it's the most area under the curve over time and and the most area uh, under the curve of, of decent training, um, with with minimal injuries to to accumulate that area under the curve so yeah i think um to steal josh's josh's um phrase like the chasing this optimal ghost i think can also interfere with people's enjoyment of training to some degree because there's you know like you guys have both said oftentimes training is perfectly sufficient to get you better but people's sort of anxiety to look over the fence and think like, is the grass always, is the grass greener next door? You know, can I change something about this? Interferes with their ability to just accrue some training over time and makes them so anxious that they don't just enjoy and invest in what they're doing. And I think also being willing to sort of say like, you know, optimality is in the long run and optimality, optimality doesn't necessarily exist on a day by day basis um, outside of some pretty narrow confines, like lets people just free themselves up, get in the gym, get after it, have some fun. And, you know, learn some things and be less worried about what they might have considered lost time if they were too hung up on chasing something in optimality that might necessarily exist. Yeah, I that that's often one of the first steps in, when working with a new individual is trying to get them to, to disassociate from those short-term trends, if you will. Um, and I think it's helpful to kind of try to get to the root of the problem there and to address that directly. I think a lot of it is insecurity or or feelings of inadequacy related to rate of progress, Um, comparing yourselves to your peers. Even the strongest lifters in the world are are, talk about this. Um, You know, there's, there's always somebody, even if you're the strongest lifter in the world, um, obviously not speaking from personal experience, but there's somebody on your tail, or if you're the second strongest, there's somebody uh, that's better than you. So I, I think attacking and addressing and being honest with ourselves and having that discussion related to, what is actually the root of the problem here uh, related to feelings of inadequacy or feelings of insecurity related to rate of progression um, and kind of coming to terms with that and understanding that yes, by taking this more sustainable approach is a delayed gratification, but the total net gratification is ultimately greater in the long run. Zach, you said something um, earlier. You were saying, you know, it can be very, very hard to tease apart exactly what's making training work, but you still, you're not nihilistic about trying to determine, you know, what is good or bad and trying to draw some cause and effect judgments. So what are maybe a few instances in which you do look over training and say, hey, you know, we've found something tangible here that I think is worth using for future training that goes beyond just that you enjoyed what we did? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, that's, I just want to hit on that again. Like there is a degree of uncertainty with this. And I think that's somewhat always going to be the case. But again, like you said, it shouldn't, it doesn't mean we have to be nihilistic about it. There are certain, certain things that we can draw from these relationships that can inform us to be, you know, closer or farther from the truth of what, what is the quote unquote optimal um, organization of things for this person. I think uh, kind of the first thing like we've hit on a few times now is just once you acknowledge that these other factors exist, you can start to, at least try to, you know, 
put that into your kind of input when you're when you're deciding what will ultimately determine the output so the more inputs you know you know or if not they were controlled so like once you think about life stress once you think about you know um, nutritional status psychological uh, factors like once you acknowledge these things play into the training response you can more easily determine whether they were controlled or not controlled when you made a training change so like if, if somebody had a severe uh, life event that considerably contributed to life stress and you know a training uh, training organization or programming strategy that you've used in the past successfully didn't work it's probably not that the programming strategy wasn't effective you could be a little bit more confident that's one of these external variables that was affecting the response so I think that's that's one of the things I think is is useful to to try to do um, but I think it's just taking a step back and thinking about like how far we've come in the research in the past 10 years, think about how far we're going to be in, in another 10 years. It's just the more factors we, we realize come into the equation, the closer we can get to making, uh, useful decisions, I think. So, um, I think, like I said, it, it, from a coaching perspective, I think it's about acknowledging these other factors and trying to get, you know, tools that will allow you to access this information as much as possible. And I think one thing that me and Josh hit on all the time is subjective information is extremely important. And it's not necessarily just the enjoyment, like you talked about, it's all this other stuff that goes into it, like life stress, nutritional, nutritional quality, um, sleep, all these, all these other things that I think you can get uh, from pretty, pretty easy to, to profile from a, you know, weekly, uh, questionnaire or something like that. There's a hundred different ways to do it, but I think having some type of pulse on these external variables will allow you to say, okay, these things were mostly in check. Now there's probably factors I'm not acknowledging and there's things outside of the scope of what I even know plays into this decision. But if we can see that most of these factors that can, and we know can contribute to the training response are kind of within normal ranges, you know, life stress hasn't dramatically changed. Nutrition's in a good spot. Um, and, and, you know, they've been sleeping well, okay, we made this change in training volume or exercise selection or whatever it is, and it seemed to relate in a positive response. That's probably about as certain we can be of a, of a, you know, a positive change in training that's related to response. Now, again, there's still caveats with that. If we go back to the muscle growth kind of example, is it the, is it the change in training volume or is it the fact that muscle growth has now accrued to a point that you know, a positive increase in performance has now been able to be demonstrated? Hard to say. But I think the more factors that we can control in that regard, the more confidence we can have in our uh, kind of ultimate decision-making. But I just think, again, just to hit on it again, having a s small degree of humility always, I think is, is a good idea just because there still are factors that we don't even know play into this. And there's probably a certain lack of control that's gonna always play into these, uh, the observations that we make. So just to hop on. Yeah, go on. Yeah, uh, so Will, you asked about, uh, you know, uh, an example of, of when we could have some degree of, of uh, intuition or, or some degree of certainty. I use that loosely, uh, that there, there is, um, you know, some degree of cause and effect here. Um, I definitely think you can do that. Like I mentioned before, you know, there's all these other factors that we have to have to throw in and consider. But again, going back to what Zach said, there's no need to be not there's no need to be nihilistic about it. I just think it's important to take a step back and think of things from more of a, a high level and think of variables, um, you know, more categorically as opposed to quantitatively. So things like, does this individual seem to fare better with, once we take into account subjective input as well as long-term trends, when we added this third top set on bench uh, into the training week? You know, those are the types of questions we can answer. We can answer, oh, this individual um, seems to get way too hyped up for top sets, so I'm not going to give them a regular single at nine, whereas this other individual that can, you know, kind of go into the gym and be all business with their top sets, um, maybe this individual, I can give them four singles a week on bench, and that's an excellent formula for them. So uh, I, and, and to kind of circle back, what we're saying you shouldn't do uh, well, well, we're saying, we're not saying you shouldn't look for signal in the noise. We absolutely think you should. We, we think you should look at these uh, big picture categorical variables that seem to correlate. Absolutely. But what we're advising against is trying to draw these cause and effect relationships with short-term things. So, so an example of that is, you know, overanalyzing a, a, a weekly performance 
and, and trying to pinpoint an exact cause for that. I think that's a net negative in the end. Um, I, I think, you know, for example, the research would not indicate that one poor night's of sleep would reliably lead to poor performance. Of course, chronic sleep loss is, is not advisable, but if we get to overanalyzing things and the, the athlete uh, reported poor sleep on, on, on nights X and Y, and, and we say, oh, that's why you had poor sleep, I think that can be a, a positive feedback loop that has negative outcomes in the sense that expectations become negative when these non-modifiable factors uh, inevitably rear their heads. Yeah, I, um, I had two things to say and I've lost both of them. The first was to say that I think there's a bit of a continuum between observing kind of what seemed to have worked and extrapolating that to why. So if, if that occurred on the spectrum, we can say to some degree of confidence what worked, although not always, not always with entire confidence, as Zach has said. But then it's another logical leap to always say why. And so sometimes when I'm talking with my clients, I try and project a bit more authority than I necessarily feel in saying it. But I also say, hey, it seems like this is really working. Not entirely certain why yet. Here's one or two plausible ideas. We'll keep it, keep an eye on it and see. But I'm pretty confident that for you, X works. You know, like, um, like I think Josh said, you know, you seem to do pretty well with more frequent, high, like high intensity exposures on your bench. So we're just going to keep that train rolling. And you know, even the observation that this seems to have been working now, so we're going to keep doing it, might be enough to breed confidence and continue with working. But for me to then say it's because you're, you know, you're, I don't even know, very fast twitch dominant athlete or something, that might be complete bullshit. Um, and so that logical leap might be a leap too far, but it's also a leap that's not necessarily useful because that leap, if it's wrong, will also exclude potentially useful avenues for future training, right? So I sort of try and approach all of my thoughts with like graded skepticism, depending on depending on just how many logical leaps it took for me to get there. Um, and so sometimes that means being comfortable in being uncertain exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing, except that it seems to be getting me the response that I would like, if that makes any sense. I think, I think that's a really, really good strategy um, in the short term. The one thing I will say is that I think, you know, in, in training as a coach, I think I'm sure you've realized this, all good trains of progress come to an end eventually. And I think as best as we can, understanding those whys allow us to troubleshoot where to go next. So I think, now I, I totally agree with your analogy is that, you know, there's a spectrum and, you know, we can be pretty damn confident in the short term. This seemed to result in a positive change, but getting to the why is what's difficult. I totally agree with that. I think striving as best we can to understand the why will inevitably allow us to troubleshoot when the short term you know, performance strategy or whatever will seem to be working, stops working. Now we can say, okay, from a higher level perspective, like Josh said, what was the interplay of these large big rocks variables that can kind of lead to this explanation? And I think that's the, that's the tricky, but also, you know, kind of the art of coaching right there is trying to take that step back and be able to identify these really big um, kind of interplay between these higher order effects that could have resulted in that short-term performance improvement. To be very clear, we don't have all the answers. I think it's, it's just acknowledging that uncertainty again, but the, the more, uh, the closer we can get to understanding that why for, for a given, um, you know, improvement, short-term improvement in performance, I think that's going to lead to the, to the best long-term kind of, uh, you know, maybe decision-making process, I guess is the best way I could say it. For sure. So you guys are called data-driven strength. Um, and I'd like to sort of know you spoken about like, the like collecting subjective data and things on your athletes. I'm curious um, when data becomes useful to you and particularly when does objective training data become useful and maybe what would constitute data um, from a coaching perspective generally? Go for it. So, so I, I think when we, when, when people hear uh, data or data, whatever your preferred pronunciation is. Data. Um, pronunciation, please. <laughs> I'm going to go with data. Um, okay. So I, I think a lot of people, when they hear that word, you know, they, they think hard numbers and, you know, input output type analyses uh, related to related to uh, training decisions. Maybe this is a kind of a cop out on our end, but we, we kind of like to define data as, as being all inputs and, it, and it's not really an intimidating thing. Like I said, it's not like we have to calculate, a confidence interval and a p-value to determine uh, our our, uh, our best way forward for training. 
again, it's all input. So th this includes our, our best understanding of the, of the research. Um, this includes, yes, object objective measures, um, but importantly in the long term, right, when we can actually detect some degree of signal from the noise. Um, and then this, uh, off this also includes subjective uh, measures uh, and these things that we've mentioned are, are often overlooked. So these are things that can be quantified. So subjective measures that can, uh, we can quantify include like uh, things like motivation to train or enjoyment. Um, you know, we view an athlete's response to how much did you enjoy this week of training on a one to 10 scale, if they answered a seven out of 10, that's data. Um, we, we also think subjective input that we can't quantify like that. We also think that's data. So whether that's, uh, you know, picking up on body language, picking up on, uh, you know, how good of a stretch reflex they were able to get out of the hole and, and how that might uh, be related to where they are in the training cycle. Like all these little things related to conversations, uh, like I said, uh, body language, um, this is all data. And, and then we also have to layer on top of that, um, you know, the, what the athlete perceives the, important, uh, the importance of that measure. So you might have one individual that comes from a background where soreness indicates an excellent workout. You might have another individual come from a background, you know, maybe have similar influences to the four of us in which being under a ton of soreness probably isn't the best idea. So we have to layer that on top of, you know, the way they perceive everything and ultimately, um, you know, how we best go forward. So again, that might be a cop out, but I think it's best to, again, with some degree of humility, incorporate all inputs and know where they have their place. So Zach, I don't know if you want to add on to any of that or, or note out, uh, point out where I wasn't clear. Yeah, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that that beautiful definition that Josh just laid out was definitely a post hoc rationalization of data. Definitely was not how we started. We we're like, man, research, science, bro. That's how it goes. And then, you know, we kind of realized I was wrong eventually. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think, you know, just hitting on everything Josh just said, I think, um, I think that data, you know, as an overall concept, what it, what it allows us to do is remove the barrier of our own biases to, to viewing what's happening. I think that's, that's kind of the overarching uh, utility of it. And so then there's better and worse scenarios that we can use that based on a given measure. So, you know, that's why we value subjective inputs so much because, you know, we all have our own experiences in the gym, our own experiences, you know, just in life in general. And that kind of is a lens in which we view everything that happens to us through um, and, and acknowledging that that differs greatly between people is, is going to be a good thing to acknowledge to when you're prescribing training. And again, all these other factors that play into it. Um, just from a just from a performance standpoint too i think one thing we've gone you know kind of an entire 180 on as far as um understanding this concept is we used to view you know performance like for powerlifting for example using an estimated one around that used to be a very short-term kind of trend that we were looking at so like okay, this week three, week four, there was a good increase, but on week five, it dipped. So let's do the X, Y, Z thing because of that trend, man, we, we just kind of taken a step back and realized we're probably pretty wrong about that. And there's just so many things that can influence that thing, that, that trend in the short term that like Josh said earlier, taking a step back and viewing that from a longer term perspective probably is a lot more useful. And it's just like anything in science, the greater sample size that we get, we start to eliminate these other factors that can be, um, you know, uh, kind of blinding the true effect that we're, that we're looking for. So I think, you know, viewing, viewing of the performances from a longer term perspective, want like an entire training cycles worth of data. Rather than, I'm so sorry. I don't know if you guys could hear that. Um, a, That's totally cool. <laughs> from a longer term perspective, um, you know, multiple weeks and weeks of, of performance data. I think that's a much more reliable way to, to make decisions based on objective stuff like that. Because again, it needs to go through the lens of all these other secondary factors that can be influencing that in the short term. So the, the longer term we have, the more data we can use, start, we can start to be a little more confident in the decisions we can make from the objective stuff. Um, Cause some of those other factors that would influence the, 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 the trend in the immediate start to get weighed out the more data points that you have. Are there, when we are thinking about performance data, depending on like your goals and maybe where you sit in the basic plan, are there, are there performance measures that might be sort of like 
more proximal to to the immediate goal that you might track, like saying the difference between a hypertrophy block and a strength block or as you're approaching a peak. Are there certain data points that you think sort of jump out as more important at those different points? So what, one thing I'll hop in here and say before we could pass it to Zach is that I think this is where some of the top-down, quote-unquote, um, things we can uh, gather from the research can become important. So in your example of, of you know, different approaches in terms of a, a hypertrophy block versus a strength block, so during a hypertrophy block, in which that's the emphasis, yes, we're hoping to see some degree of top-end strength uh, progress or, or at least maintenance. Um, but it's really hard to measure muscle growth in the short term. Um, you know, we're not all carrying around ultrasounds and measuring muscle thickness on a regular basis. Even if we could, I don't know how useful that would be. Um, but this is where we can, we can kind of use a, what I call like a top-down checklist uh, to, to make sure we're checking all of our boxes uh, to, uh, to make sure we're, we're putting ourselves in a place that gives us our best bet to move towards the primary emphasis of that training block. So in the example of a, of a hypertrophy phase, this would be things like properly dosed training for the individual, um, you know, managing lifestyle factors related to being in some degree of a calorie surplus, um, having sufficient protein, things like that, that we're not, you know, you know, performance across sets might be helpful, but we can take performance measures in conjunction with, with these checklist type things and, and kind of be comfortable with the, with the fact that things are likely moving in the right direction. Um, and, and then some of the objective measures as we uh, move, move towards more of a, a peaking phase, like you mentioned, that's when we can uh, measure something that's, that's closer to the actual goal because that's the goal of the, the training phase. Um, and, and it's much easier to, co to collect that objective data. So that's an example where we might kind of shift our emphasis in terms of what we're focusing on for the training phase. Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that. I think, uh, yeah, Josh said on it pretty good. I think there's there's that checklist and that subjective input I think is really big, especially the more advanced you get. Like um, you get people that have been training for 15, 20 years. Um, you just kind of know when things are going well. It's kind of, it's really just, it's hard to even describe what what I'm even talking about. It's it's kind of just this ethereal thing that people just kind of, man, training is going well right now. My single is not really trending up, but I just know it's going well. And then lo and behold, two or three blocks later, it's, it's demonstrated. So I, I think, especially the more advanced you get, taking stock in that subjective input, whether that comes from some objective source like body weight and waist circumference, for example, like you could use that in concert with it. But I think, again, relying on that subjective input of like, and like you guys said earlier, stuff takes time, like literally nanogram upon nanogram of muscle tissue is going to have to stack up before, you know, whatever happens uh, from the strength perspective. So I think um, giving yourself enough time and paying credence to those subjective inputs, especially the more advanced you get, I think is, definitely a, a good resource in, in, in a phase where, like Josh said, if it's for a strength athlete and you're a little bit removed from the, from the, the absolute goal of that individual, I think that subjective information can become a little bit more useful than maybe some objective measures that a lot of people rely on. So what about, um, and I'm, I'm asking this question, thinking about coaches who are listening to this and who have their sort of own way of training or managing their athletes. If you like across different training paradigms, again, do you think that, that there might be certain points of data that would be more important. Like I presume Boris Shaco and Louis Simmons, if you whacked them in a room with 50 athletes, they'd be looking for different things when they were making assessments of the athletes. So to what degree do you think that matters? Let me take back. Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting question, first of all. I think um, from a coaching perspective, obviously everybody's got a different approach to kind of get to the same end if you're all approaching the same goal. Um, I think in that process, one thing I, I always think about is, you know, let's say you take, so this is going to be kind of a weird analogy, but I'm going to try. Um, you take somebody that is maybe a construction worker and they're, and they're used to using a shovel. And then you give them maybe a more efficient tool for the job, but it's something they haven't ever used in the past 20 years they've been using a shovel. And that initial time when you give them the tool, they're probably less efficient than they were with the shovel that they've been using for the last 20 years. So I think that's, that's something I think is really important to understand is that from a coach's perspective, there's probably certain tools that may not be quote unquote optimal 
for whatever outcome that you're that you're using it for. But if you have a really good familiarity with that tool, you know the ins and outs of it, you know all the all the kind of trends that you typically see for a given uh, a given trend. I think that's there's something to be said for that, and I think there that's part of the reason why you know, you can have success with the West side system or you can have success with the Boris Shaco system. There, there's different ways to skin the cat, you know, preferably. Um, so I think that's the first thing to, to acknowledge that there's, there's different ways to do it. I think, um, you know, I think, I think to a certain degree, the closer the information is to the actual goal that you're trying to pursue, I think the more useful it is. And I think that kind of goes across the board. So for Apollo, for example, I think some type of objective metric of strength is probably the best piece of measurement that, um, you know, you could have, but the way that exactly looks can probably be different depending on the paradigm you're coming from. So, you know, the popular way of doing it nowadays is estimate one RM. I think there's a lot of advantages to doing that. And that's my personal bias, but that does not to say that you can't use, like in a West side system, you're literally using the absolute performance from max effort day. It's a very similar concept. You know, you're getting at the same information. You're just doing, using it in a different, a different way. And I think just acknowledging that you can do it differently, there's probably better and worse ways, but then you add on the effect of kind of the white coat effect, like Boris Shaco is going to have buy-in from an athlete, no matter what, because he's Boris Shaco and him using his tools that he's wrote books about, he's gave speeches about is probably part of the buy-in that, you know, this maybe a, an athlete has read about Boris's methods. He, he's excited to try this system that he's been reading about. And like, that is all part of the, the puzzle that gives this athlete a buy-in and a pro- positive expectancy. And, and, and maybe as part of the kind of part of the overall positive response, that's something Josh and I talk about with like, you know, the, the, the modern powerlifting coach spreadsheet and stuff is like, that's it. That's, that's part of, part of the game. Like if, if you're an athlete that signs up for coaching, you see this super shiny spreadsheet, like, man, this is going to go well. And it just starts to build this, build this positive momentum, even outside of the gym that can, that can positively affect things. So I definitely tangented off that question. I don't know if tangented is a word, probably not, but um, tangentiated, I think is, yeah, I'll go, I'll roll with that. But yeah, I mean, I think, sophisticated, bro. yeah, bro. <laughs> um, Zach, do you have anything else to say or can I hop in? I don't know. That's kind of a weird. Josh is stinging to say something. He's he's moving around in his chair. Look at him. (laughs) Go on, Josh. Okay. um, If you'll grant me the the opportunity to speak, I'll take it. Um, So to to answer your question directly, Will, uh, related to, you know, different coaching paradigms or different coaching systems lead to a difference in what the best way to track progress or, or collect data is. Uh, to directly answer that, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and again, this goes back to an overarching theme of everything we've said today is to always come back and have some degree of humility uh, that what you do probably isn't the best possible way to go about it. There, there's always going to be something you can do better. Now, of course, it's our job to, to employ our best guess of how to go about these things um, and, and always continually learn and refine. But, you know, Boris Shaco and Westside have gotten athletes stronger doing completely different things. And, and that kind of underscores the, the, the fact that there's multiple routes to get to the same endpoint of higher top end strength. Um, so we're, we're of the opinion that your best bet for long-term, uh, long-term strength gains is going to be improving a lot of muscle mass. But if, if you're in a coaching paradigm where that's not the, uh, what the coach is totally bought into, there are other ways to get to top end strength gain by just totally maxing out your, your confidence with top end loads. Um, you, you know, there, there's different ways to go about this and a lot of people have gotten strong in, in a lot of different ways. So again, I circle back to, to having uh, humility with everything. Um, and, and to give uh, uh, an example that might ring true to, to some people listening to this, because it's, I think it's relevant to the circles that uh, the four of us come from is that, you know, there's kind of two ways to go about, periodization. Um, not that these are the only two ways, but, but uh, bear with me for a little bit of a, of a thought experiment. So if you use a periodization strategy, like you mentioned before, Will, in which you emphasize hypertrophy for a good bit, and then you try to translate that to peak top end strength. Um, in that case, we're not, totally, we're not totally concerned with top end strength during the hypertrophy phase. Whereas uh, another uh, coaching paradigm might be where you don't necessarily uh, dichotomize the training phases and you just kind of do both concurrently over time, 
um, and you manage the, the fitness and fatigue dynamics as much as you can so that a, a hypertrophy accruing can, uh, can translate into top end strength as soon as possible. So in that case, we might be more worried with, with estimated 1RM over the course of a block, whereas uh, a system like we use, we're not as concerned with it over that six-week block. So there's a ton of different ways to get strong. Um, you know, again, it's, it's our job to, to, to do our best uh, based on our understanding of the research, based on uh, our, our, our conjectures of the research and experience. But the way you employ these strategies and all these different routes you can take to get strong is going to influence how you go about tracking things and making subsequent adjustments. Sweet, man. Um, I think that's a pretty salient point for us to wrap this discussion up on. If either of you two have something that you're, that you're dying to throw in, then, then we're happy to hear it. Otherwise, we'll move on to the four questions. Good to go. All right, very quick break, guys. We'll be right back with four questions to tell us everything we need to know about a person. We don't edit. Yeah, was, I'm glad we got that we recorded. Do. We certainly we do not edit. Um, guys, we're back with Weekly Weights. We're back with the voice from Data Driven Strength. We're onto the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. And I'm ashamed to say that not only did these two prepare, but they're still not confident. I, all mine are blank, so keep that in mind. <laughs> this, doesn't, this doesn't bode well, we're going to start. I can't believe you guys met at university. You sound like that student who knows the exam's coming, is worried about the exam coming, and still doesn't practice, and then is sitting outside the exam, like playing the victim card. Yeah, I mean, Zach yeah, likes to do that. Pretty, pretty. <laughs> that's a pretty fair analogy there. So, right, I'll, I'll take my. All right, question one: If you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Zach first. He seems ready. <laughs> <laughs> anyone out to dinner ever? I had a few ideas. Um, man. Yeah, it's tough. I'm, I'm kind of a philosophy nerd, but before some of my friends in real life would would yell at me, I, I just like listening to things. I don't necessarily like read the original text, which is I know it's a it's a deadly sin. I can't do that. Um, I like a lot of Immanuel Kant stuff, so probably him pick his brain on some stuff related to moral philosophy and such. That's probably probably my probably my answer. Okay. So I I can spin this off and make this not sound as bad as it could possibly sound. Um, so, so related to moral philosophy, uh, I find it very interesting how, you know, the, I, I find the viewpoint that individuals are, are simply the, the product of, of their genetics and their environment, uh, very interesting. And, and I'm, and I'm no expert in, in, in moral psychology or moral philosophy. So my answer to the question is Hitler in early adulthood. So again, to be very, very, I saw Hitler coming from miles away. <laughs> That, like I don't know why I just looked at you and thought he's going to say Hitler, and I mean that in the kindest. <laughs> uh, <way. laughs> to be to be to be very clear, he is a, the worst human to ever step foot on the earth. To be very clear, I reckon um, Stalin gives him a good run for his money. <laughs> we can debate that, but I'm just covering my butt right now. I, I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> Honestly, I accidentally, like, and truly, truly, accidentally made a Holocaust reference about four or five episodes ago. Complete slip of the tongue. And since then, I think our Jewish listener base has gone from probably one at its peak, to be honest, to zero. So you're safe to say that you want to have dinner with Hitler, but it's good that you've apologized for it as well, just in case. We Here's your do, chance to apologize, Will. We might do our first editing and say that Hitler was your mate after. So I'm just cutting <laughs> God, this whole thing out no. too. I, trust me, I spent the whole episode apologizing profusely and Alex has not let, let me live it down since. This is a slippery slope. I say we move on to the question number no, two. No, I'm curious. So you want to talk to Hitler because you want to, what well, you want to sort of understand how he possibly came to be the way that he is. Exactly. I, like I, I, I imagine, whenever you're you're, you dislike an individual, I think there's a, a good degree of grace you can provide if you just think of them as a child. Um. Now, again, I'm, I'm not covering for Hitler, but I think it's fascinating to, to think how, how a child could end up doing such terrible things. 
Um, this is the most hubris-ridden answer ever. You want to take child Hitler out to dinner and try and correct him. You think <laughs> you think that you could have... Let's move on to question number two. Um, <laughs> I love this. All right, question number two. Who's your favourite athlete of all time? Zach. Oh, no, you're going first for this one, big guy. Dirk Nowitzki. Yes. Who's that? Good answer. German NBA player okay, for cool. the Mavericks. Why Dirk? Dirk? Dirk. Yeah, why Dirk? I, uh, I really relate in the sense that he could never jump high. He could never run super fast. Um, but, you know, I had a sweet fadeaway. He has a sweet fadeaway, so I really connect with him in that sense. Are you feeling a that. big Jewish vibe? Not Jewish vibe, German vibe right now from Josh. <laughs> said two German people. That's pretty real. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite band, Rammstein. <laughs> Favorite book, Mein Kampf, probably. <laughs> All right. Oh, Okay, you, man, yeah, you're lucky. Oh, Zach, the numbers Zach, are down. You're Zach, in this you're shit. Go on, Zach. Uh, I'm just going to have to make some calls after this. Make sure Josh is, you know, put on surveillance because I'm, I'm just afraid after a few of these answers, he's really, you know, starting to show me his true intentions as a business partner. So that's my, that's my first thing to say. Um, I probably would say Wes Welker is a little small receiver that played in the NFL for a long time, related a lot to him being a small football player so probably Wes Walker yeah when you're again I don't really know much about the NFL when you're a like smaller receiver I presume that the whole way you play is to try and get yourself in space to get the ball rather than like actually contest in the air with people is that yeah is that the case he was an absolute magician with being quick in a phone booth and being able to you know the entire kind of organization of when he played he would essentially have a two-way go on every route and he was just an absolute magician at setting people up despite not being the most athletic. So he, you know, he, he just made a career of, uh, out of essentially running an option route, which is what it's called and find spaces in the defense, whether it's man or zone. And he would just, he's just very, very good at that. And I just always appreciated him being kind of an undersized, slower, not super athletically gifted guy and still like making a career and being one of the best slot receivers to ever play. Super cool. All right, we'll move on to question three. Um, which movie or television character do you most resemble? I'll, I'll, go go first. First. I'll, I'll go first because mine's underwhelming <laughs> compared to Zach's. Um, are you guys familiar with the show Drake and Josh? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, definitely, uh, I definitely resemble Josh from Drake and Josh. Literally um, nothing like him at all. Like, isn't Josh is, the fat one? You didn't know me when I was younger. You didn't know me when I was younger. Yeah, Josh isn't is the, Josh fat, the one, fat one, isn't he? Yeah, 100%. You look a bit more like Drake than Josh, surely. Uh, oh, he's is frozen. he frozen? Frozen? Yeah, he doesn't want to defend himself. Okay, we'll, we'll take your answer, Zach. Um, I, I said uh, I wrote this one down. It, I would say Caillou, which is like a little children's show, like this little dude that's bald. All my friends say I look like him, so I'm just gonna own that. It says, Caillou. Josh, Josh just, uh, I lost you guys. Oh no. We're gonna take a very very quick break. We'll come right back with Josh for question four. All right, we're back on air. It's 10 seconds have passed. Josh has rejoined us. So Zach said he's looked like Caillou. Um, we'll move on to question four. There wasn't enough controversy in that answer from you, Josh. I'm actually pretty disappointed because you've been leaning in hard to like to <laughs> putting the audience off this round. But now's your chance. Um, so question number four is that your life is being made into a movie montage and you get to choose the music that it's set to. What music would you pick? So I'd go with the anthem by Good Charlotte. Uh, <laughs> you literally stole I, that. I just want that to be clear. No, no, no. That was that was that was my knee-jerk reaction to the question. Absolutely I, I mean, what better song for a life montage of a guy that resembles Josh from Drake and Josh? I mean, it's name a, one movie that's in. Uh, the Pacifier. Who told you that? <laughs> I, I can't believe you, you two are big Good Charlotte fans, but surely only old-school Good Charlotte, like. The anthem's a great song. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous is a great song. But they went from good Charlotte to like mediocre Charlotte pretty quickly after that, I think. <laughs> I know the anthem and that's it. So I'm just going <laughs> to refrain from commenting further. Sure. What's your answer? Oh, dude, I don't know. I'm just thinking. Soundtrack of my life, pretty boring. Not too eventful. A failed preparation. Yeah, literally something like that. Dude, I don't know, man. Honestly, I just go for like, 
There's no music in the background. That's how boring it is. Dude, I I literally don't listen to music. This is why this is so hard. I would I would say. So I'm just gonna go with the lo-fi study mix on uh, YouTube. Okay. That stuff. That stuff's amazing. I like the. This is shamefully nerdy, but I like the like lo-fi mixes of like Nintendo music. Oh, dude, yeah, one hundred percent. I listen to Gold and Silver Pokemon uh, remixes all the time. Um, absolutely amazing. I have so many memories of that game. I listen to those all the time. There's well, if you like that, there's somebody who I think their artist name on Spotify is Skotein, like S K O T E I N, who did an or- orchestrated version of um, of the Red Blue Yellow soundtrack, and it's incredibly well put together. Those and um, the Legend of Zelda ones are great too. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say Legend of Zelda music is like. It's some of the best program music ever written by a mile. It's amazing. But the lo-fi mixes are unreal as well. So I'm with somebody you. Told me that, uh, somebody told me that video game music was like stimulating for your brain so you'd be better at problem solving. And I've just ran with that ever since. So I'm totally just going to accept that at face value. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. All right. Now, even more exciting to me than the four questions is that when we introduced this segment, Josh immediately said he hopes we can do underrated, overrated, properly rated, which tells us both that he's a listener of the show um, and that he actually wanted to kind of get involved and flip the switch and host a little bit. So, Josh, do you have one prepared for us? Alex and I are ready. So this is our our first crack at the Data Driven Strength Podcast. So welcome, everybody, to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My first um, overrated, underrated, or properly rated for uh, our first guest, thank you guys for being on, uh, Will and Alex. Overrated, <laughs> underrated, or properly rated, mint chocolate chip ice cream. Oh, I already uh, know my answer. Horrifically overrated. Definitely, I agree entirely with Alex. You, got you, guys, can, you guys are welcomed back on the show. <laughs> adding, <laughs> adding, mint to, adding mint to dessert means you like the taste of eating things after brushing your teeth. I was going to say, it's literally like you've just decided to brush your teeth mid-chocolate. Like, it's so bad. I'm very anti-mint chocolate. Thank you. They're friendlies. <laughs> Zach <laughs> seems appalled. Zach, do you have one for us? Yeah, I'm thinking. I'm uh, Okay. Over Overrated, underrated, or properly rated, uh, in-person sporting events. So going to the sporting event and actually being in person rather than watching on TV. This will be interesting because Alex and I are both big sports fans, but I'd say that Alex is a bigger sports fan. I think this depends on the sport. Mm-hmm. I agree. So lots of sports have like plenty of dead time. So if you're actually at the game, it's more boring. So like NFL, for instance, probably better to watch it on TV so you can see all the replays, you can hear all the commentary, all that stuff. If you're at the game, unless you have like a radio headset, it's pretty hard to know what's going on all the time. Um, but there are plenty of sports that are much better to be at live. Basketball probably being the biggest example for me. Basketball live. Because you can get really amazing. close. You can hear what they're saying. Um, yeah, I think I think it's probably properly rated as a whole, but certain sports differ. Yeah, so my, my favorite sport is rugby. Um, and particularly in Sydney, a lot of our stadiums for rugby aren't particularly good stadiums to be a spectator at just because your view isn't that good and you sit a long way back from the action. But when you go to a good stadium with a good crowd for rugby, it's really, really good to watch. So I think that throws a bit of a spanner in the works. But for me, I would say that it's slightly overrated because it tends to be like a very long commute and pretty expensive to watch sport in less comfort and with less enjoyment than watching it with my mates like in the pub or at home. However, there are certain sports where I would not be inclined to watch it at home at all. But if I went to it, I'd probably have a good time. And the classic Aussie example, I think, is cricket. Because if you go to the cricket in Australia, it's literally just a day of drinking with the boys where you dress up and it's almost not about the sport at all. And you just sit there in the sun. So Alex, how would you rate going to the cricket? I love going to the cricket. So underrated, overrated, properly rated. Going to the cricket is underrated. Okay. I actually like watching cricket at home though. Really? I would put it on and leave the room. I'm like, I literally leave the cricket on in the background. And if I hear excitement, which happens every two hours, I run in and watch the replay quickly. Um, and it's five days as well if, if there's a test match. So it's literally, it can occupy a week of your time just simmering along. See, like cricket's a lot like baseball for you guys. Like it used to be Australia's national sport and now it's like slowly kind of oh, losing it's interest. still surely like well, one of the most popular sports, if I, not the I, most. I wouldn't say it is. I think like with everyone's a short attention span these days, I don't think a lot of kids are playing cricket. Like 
how it would be with baseball. Yeah. Yeah. In short, properly rated. Yeah, go ahead and wrap it up, Josh. This has been a good episode. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on to the show. Uh, it, it was really an honor. Uh, well thought out answers. So thank you. Thank you. Alex, do you want to maybe tell everybody where they can find you on the internet? Given that you're uh, You guest? can find me, Alex Hayes underscore process on Instagram. And I'm at w.bergmanpt. Guys, where can people find you and where can they inquire for coaching? Uh, you can find me at josh.datadrivenstrength um, on Instagram. Uh, we also have like a, a team Instagram account no real educational stuff on there, but just showcasing some of our lifter stuff um, at Data Driven Strength. Um, and then our website is data-drivenstrength.com. Uh, we have some articles on there. If, if you click on the link tree in my or Zach's bio on Instagram, um, you know that's links for, for inquiries about coaching as well as some other guest articles we have on, on some other sites. You can check that out. And Zach, you can plug your, your Instagram too real quick. Yep, Zach.data-driven-strength. So. I retweet everything Josh said. Done. Thank, thank you guys for having us on. It was a, it was a good chat. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, guys. Good chat. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you.